Well, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8. I just listened to an interview this past week. There are around 100 uncontacted tribes in the Amazon alone. Never heard. Is it dangerous to reach them? You better believe it. It's very dangerous. Does it seem impossible on our own strength? Well, it is impossible on our own strength. But Jesus came for every tribe, didn't He? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so today, the focus is going to be on service and, in particular, missions. But how about we pray together and then we'll look at the passage. Father, we thank You so much for this day that You've made. Help us to rejoice and be glad. Help us today to have an eternal perspective, to see the world with Your eyes. That You would help us today to have the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, that we'd be energized and empowered by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us today to see from Your Word what it is that You've called us to do. Help us to understand more about our role in Your big program of building Your church, reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of Your Word this morning, but that Your Word would be clear to Your people. Help us to feast on each word today and to grow from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through 2 Corinthians verse by verse, and we've entered this section of the letter, chapters 8 and 9, where he's talking about their giving. They're giving not generally week by week, giving offerings to the local church for the local church, but a specific fundraising campaign that Paul has been spearheading. The Corinthians were setting aside funds that would be used to care for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Their fellow believers who were in a very different context, who were suffering because of famine, persecution, and a variety of other factors, they were in need of financial support. The Corinthians, we learned last week, had an abundance. Paul was encouraging them to share out of their abundance. It wouldn't be as painful for this particular church to share as it would have been for say, the Macedonians who gave painfully. The Corinthians had an abundance where they could help. And so it may seem like he's taking a break from the giving talk in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 16 is where we'll be. But he's not quite taking a break. He's still talking about this fundraising campaign and specifically the men he is sending ahead of him who will go and greet the church and help administer, steward, take care of this financial gift. Paul is endorsing those whom he is sending, and he's sending them with this letter in hand. So I think we would do well as we read the section this morning to put ourselves in the Corinthians' place. That is, of course, almost always the goal when we read the Bible, isn't it? To put yourself in the position of the audience to help understand the original context. But imagine the Corinthian church who has these three men arrive that we're going to look at here this morning with this letter from the Apostle Paul. And he's talking about these men and they're standing right in front of them. A fascinating situation. And what we'll see here this morning and really what I want to be the overarching main point for us is that Christian ministry is a team sport. 
Christian ministry, missions, service to God is a team effort. There is no doubt about it. Now, of course, we all individually serve God too. God has gifted each of His people with gifts that are irrevocable. He's equipped us to serve Him individually. But don't you know that there's something special about devoted Christians coming together and how God uses the team, how the Lord Jesus works through His body, how we become together the hands and feet of Christ in reaching the world for Him. You could say it takes a village to serve God. It takes all of us together. An amazing example is just to consider Jesus Himself. If there was ever a person who walked the face of the earth who didn't need a team, it would be Jesus. And yet He called disciples, didn't He? And He spent time with His disciples. And He worked with that team. And in the same way, here we are downstream from those original 12 disciples. He has called us as a team for His mission to spread the good news of salvation to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Considering Paul's own ministry, if you look at the the breadth of his letters, the 13 letters of the New Testament that came from the hand of the Apostle Paul, he listed upwards of 40 people who sponsored his ministry. If you look at the end of those letters, you'll often see lists of names. These were people who supported Paul, financially or otherwise. And then, of course, he had many people who went with him. He had co-workers, co-laborers in the gospel who traveled around with him. There were special workers that he even called his own sons. Onesimus, the runaway slave, was Paul's son in the faith. Timothy and Titus. And Titus was specifically used to help the Corinthian church along, and we'll see his name again here this morning. We've seen his name already come up in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in chapter 7, earlier in chapter 8, and then once again here in chapter 8, starting at verse 16. Titus had caught Paul's devotion to the Corinthians. After Titus's first trip, his heart was encouraged. His heart, you could say, was even enlarged for the believers in Corinth. Let's read about it. In verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 8, it says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Titus was first urged to go to Corinth by Paul after Paul had sent his harsh letter. Maybe you forgot about that part of the story, but Paul had, has this interesting relationship with the Corinthians. They're on good terms, they're on bad terms. They're on good terms, they're on bad terms. Well, one of the times where they were on bad terms and the Corinthians were grumpy toward Paul, he had written to them what he called a harsh letter. And Titus was urged to go follow up. You have to have a ministry heart to go into that hornet's nest. You have to have the calling of God on your life to not only go to the Corinthians who were messed up enough. We've gone through 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and we've seen all the ways where they were straying from the Lord. But to go even after the harsh letter, probably no idea what he'd be getting himself into, but he had the heart to go. And let's look how that went to remind ourselves. Just go back one chapter, 2 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 13. Look at what happened when Titus went the first time. 
Paul says, besides our comfort, starting in the middle of the verse there, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Well, that went better than he ever could have hoped, it sounds like, didn't it? They received him with fear and trembling. They refreshed his heart. So even though this passage today says a lot about Titus, the missionary, we're also learning something about the Corinthians too. That even though they were like the crazy mutts of the early church who just had all sorts of issues, they also had love, didn't they? Don't count the Corinthians out. And even today, we might know some Corinthian-type people in our lives that are just constantly getting distracted. And are, we're on good terms, we're on bad terms. We're on good terms, we're on bad terms. Don't count them out. If they truly belong to God, God is going to use them mightily in His program. And they were used to refresh Titus's heart. Well, at this point, Titus was ready to go again. And this time, Paul makes it clear he was going of his own accord. You see that at the end of verse 17 of chapter 8? Titus has gone to you of his own accord. It's the same phrase that he used about the giving of the Macedonians earlier in the chapter. The Macedonians have given to the Jerusalem saints out of their own accord. Perhaps one of the, uh, the made-up insults that false apostles were lobbing toward Paul in Corinth was that he was forcing people to do stuff. Well, Paul makes it clear here, these people who are participating in this fundraising effort are doing so voluntarily of their own accord. And Titus does so voluntarily, still look at verse 17 here, because he has become very earnest. That's a very important term to point out. Very earnest. It's just one word in the Greek. It's a word that means enthusiastic. Titus has enthusiastic care. For the Corinthians. He has an eagerness to be with the Corinthians. He had a heart for them that could be described as enthusiastic. So you see, this fundraising wasn't all just about caring for the Jerusalem saints. Titus being sent to go get their donation, he was going there because he cared about them, not just because he cared about those in Jerusalem, but he cared about the Christians in Greece. Homer Kent, in his commentary, put it this way, Neither Paul nor Titus was prompted solely by sympathy for those in physical need. Each also desired to see a spirit of generosity displayed among the Corinthians. It would be an evidence of spiritual growth on their part, and such a prospect excited Paul and Titus. God had put on Titus's heart a willingness to care for the Corinthians and to go see them again. And willingness really is a theme of these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9. The willingness that we are to have as Christians to participate in what God is doing in the world. It has to do with our calling in life and our being sent out to reach people in the name of Jesus. But Titus wasn't alone. We find in this passage there were two others who went with him. Two men who shall remain nameless went with Titus. This is very interesting. Let's look at verse 18 and we'll see the preacher boy. 
Verse 18 of chapter 8. We have sent along with him, with Titus, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. Well, who could this be? That's kind of interesting. The brother who is just really good in things of the gospel, whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread to other churches. I love Charles Spurgeon's comment on this verse. He said about this brother, it may have been Luke. Probably it was. It may not have been Luke. Probably it was not. We do not know who it was. See, anybody can write a Bible commentary. Look how easy that was. Well, it's true. We do not know who this brother was. But I would hope that this brother, if he were to know that we were reading about him in the year 2023, that he wouldn't care that we don't know what his name is. Because that's a true ministry heart, isn't it? To not care. Someone who was really famous in the first century for his preaching of the gospel. Name is forgotten, but the name he preached isn't forgotten. Christ's name continues. It reminded me of what George Whitfield once said. Whitfield said, let my name perish, but let Christ's name last forever. That's got to be the heart of every true Christian missionary. Well, I want to point something out to you in verse 18. If you're using the New American Standard 95, that's the Bible that we preach and teach from here the vast majority of the time, you'll notice that almost every verse will have some italics in it. Or as my grandpa Howard used to say, some italics. They're there in the middle of the verse, in verse 18, we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in, here's the italics, things of, the things of, the gospel has spread through all the churches. When the New American Standard uses italics, it's because those words are not original to the Greek. It's a courtesy that the New American Standard does that for us. It helps us to read the verse better. better. It helps us to understand perhaps more of what Paul was saying because he didn't have those words to connect some of his thoughts and may leave us wondering a little bit. But God bless them, the translators for the NASB there, they went minimalistic and just said the things of, his fame in the things of the gospel. But what could that possibly mean? He has fame in the gospel. That's how Paul wrote it. This brother had fame in the gospel. Well, let me read to you from four other translations so you can see how they have dealt with this verse. In the King James Bible, it says, And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Now, that's kind of interesting. His praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. New International Version, the NIV, it says, And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. The New Living Translation, NLT, says, We are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. Christian Standard Bible, CSB, says, We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. It's a, more of a unique way of putting it. But I think each one of these, we looked at five translations now, I think each one of these is saying the same thing. This brother who was sent was a skilled, uh, articulate proclaimer of the good news of the gospel. And so much so that the churches in the area knew who he was. 
Though we don't know him today, the churches of his time knew who he was because he's probably visited them teaching about what Jesus has done. He had received widespread recognition, apparently, and yet through it, it seems he maintained his character because Paul was willing to send him with Titus. Someone who can receive widespread recognition for being up in front of people and being articulate, being a good teacher, and still have good character, that says much about a man, doesn't it? You really want to test somebody? Give that person some fame or some power. Give that person some influence, and you'll find out what that person's character is in a hurry. Just a few years ago, I was at a conference in California with Tyler and Dean, and something happened there twice that had never happened to me before. I was recognized. And as a TV character once said, it's intoxicating. (laughs) I was just there in Southern California walking along, and someone said, are you Jeremy Howard? Whoa! My face wasn't on the milk carton, was it? You know, it's... uh, I I had just done a debate a few months before that had been seen by a few people online, and I'm assuming that was probably where he had heard of me. And then another guy caught me in the bathroom and asked me the same question, and yeah, that's me. And we had dinner that night, and I told those guys, watch me, because this can go to my head really fast. And I'm afraid that fame has ruined many a good preacher. We hear about these preachers on the radio or on TV who fall all the time because they got a platform. They got the big book deal. They got published by the right people and they were invited to all the conferences to be up in front of everybody. Eventually, their true character is going to show how quickly that can go to someone's head. Well, it wasn't just the famous preacher. There was another brother. Let's jump down to verse 22. There's another one who was sent with Titus. It says, We have sent with them, Titus and the preacher, our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. And as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ." Isn't this amazing that the three of them together are called a glory to Christ? Is there a higher term that you could ever have applied to you? No. They were a glory to Christ. Well, this other brother was also very earnest. It's that same word that we saw about the preacher up above. He is very earnest. It says in the New American Standard, this is verse 22, diligent, but it's the same word. You could substitute earnest there. He's very diligent or enthusiastic in all things. It could be understood that he shared this optimism about the Corinthians. He wanted to go to the Corinthians to see them serve the Lord, to encourage them in their service. And he says of these three men in verse 23 that they are apostles. Maybe yours doesn't say that. Mine doesn't. They are messengers of the churches. It's the word apostles. Now, there's a distinction between capital A apostles and lowercase a apostles. These are lowercase a apostles. They didn't have the same authority in the church as Paul or Peter or John. But the word means to be sent. They are sent ones. They are traveling missionaries, apostles sent out for the work of the Lord. 
This term was also applied to Barnabas in the New Testament and Epaphroditus. There are a couple of people in Romans 16 that were called apostles in this sense. They were sent out as qualified servants of the Lord. But I want us to dwell on this whole sending, going, and even receiving element and make this message one about missions. It's just, it's just too, I don't know, just laying right there in front of the text for me not to do this. This is a sermon about Christian missions. And perhaps even today, as we're thinking about these three men who were sent to Corinth and thinking about how they were used of the Lord, maybe even today there would be in the hearts of some of you here a prompting, a calling of God, a moving of the Spirit to be missionaries yourselves. Because as they were, we are part of a large system here in the world that that God is running It includes the sending of people and the receiving of people in the name of Christ. Partnership in the gospel. Christian missions. I think it's right here in the text. And so let's talk about sending, let's talk about going, and let's talk about receiving. Three elements here to Christian missions. Let's dwell on sending first. This should be the goal of all churches. Even Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Even Cornerstone Bible Church in West Point, Utah. Churches that have been planted in recent history. Churches that still consider themselves to be mission churches. The goal of every church should be to send people away. Now that could be taken the wrong way, couldn't it? (laughs) But the goal of every church should be to see qualified people raised up and sent out to reach the world with the gospel. I I get the impression that Paul and the churches of his time were constantly looking out for goers, people who were wanting to go, people who were itching to get out and to spread the good news. Even with Titus, Paul initially urged him. We see this a couple of times in the book, in chapter 8 and in chapter 12. But we can infer from that that Titus was open. Titus had this heart that was open to God's calling. And maybe we could start there as we're going to be making lots of application points throughout here. Maybe we can start right here and just ask ourselves the question, are we open? If God were to call you away from what you've got going on right now, are you open? If someone like the Apostle Paul came into your life and was urging you to go, Would you even consider? I think that's a great place to start. Because many of us are very comfortable. I know I'm very comfortable. We have made our lives in such a way, as far as God has given us freedom, we've manipulated our lives in such a way that we're comfy. But God might be saying, walk away from it. Titus was called through the urging of Paul. But it wasn't just Paul. Let's look at this passage from a higher view and see where the churches are involved. Again, verse 18, back up toward the start of the passage, 8.18, notice that the preacher, his fame has spread through all the churches. And not only this, verse 19, but he has been appointed by the churches. Local churches are involved. Drop down to verse 23. It says that Titus 
And these two other men are messengers of the churches. Verse 24, he urges the Corinthians, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of, proof of your love. Four times in these verses, he calls on plural, the churches, the local churches that are involved in this Christian missionary effort. You see, Titus was no rogue missionary. These three men weren't just buddies who got together one day and decided to go off and, and to do this mission apart from the local church. They weren't rogue. They were actually led in, in submission to the local church. And Titus wasn't just some yes man of the Apostle Paul. He too was appointed by the churches. The churches were involved in appointing even Titus himself, Paul's son in the faith. And this missionary effort wasn't some 501c3 operation. This wasn't a parachurch effort. This was through the local church, not beside or apart from the local church. And there's room for all of that. But notice in Christian missions here, the local church is involved. These men were appointed by local churches. Now we know that God is the one who ultimately sends every one of His people into the mission field, but get this, God does it through His people. God appoints people to go, and He sends them through the church. And we can see this perfectly in Acts chapter 13. If you would turn back with me just a couple of books to Acts 13 and the first three verses of that chapter. Paul himself experienced this. Paul and Barnabas experienced the calling of God that was realized in the context of the local church. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then they just left and didn't say anything. No, no. Verse 3, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. See how the local church is involved here? Now, God spoke it. He said it plainly. This is what's going on. And even then, the local church fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them. So how much more today when you're not getting a phone call from the Holy Spirit? When you think, maybe God's calling me to this or maybe God's calling me to that, how much more should you involve God's people? How much more should we be fasting and praying? How much more should the leaders of the church lay their hands upon you, appoint you, and send you and the church support you. Even more so today, we should care about these things. Paul was sent by the Holy Spirit. He was sent by the local church. The same thing was happening in the life of Titus. God didn't only do that in the first century. He does that today. You know, sending people out is a beautiful way to participate in the gospel. The sending of Christians out from a local church to go somewhere else is a beautiful thing. It, it makes us cry. It puts us in awe, just as this morning Jerry was reflecting on how amazing it was that Frank could be teaching the Bible today since he knew you before then. It just does all these 
it just does all these things to us because we're seeing the hand of God in building His church. I want to read to you a portion of an article that was written about the Summit Church. Listen to how seriously they take the sending of missionaries. At the Summit Church in North Carolina, the children's facility is shaped like an airplane hangar. The classrooms are marked like terminals with signs such as Gate K-1, Gate 24, and Summit Airlines marking the way. Maps of the world hang prominently, and the sign over the exit says, You are sent. When babies are born, parents are commissioned to raise them, quote, as arrows to be launched out into the world, Summit Sending Pastor Todd Unzicker said. By the time children finish middle school, the summit wants them to have experienced a domestic short-term mission trip with their family. By early high school, they're encouraged to do a trip somewhere in the Americas. By senior year, around 25 of them out of 250 will have committed to spend three weeks living with one of summit's overseas missionaries. The summit asks every college student to give one summer to a mission trip. Then they ask for two years of mission work. Don't read Utah into that. Then they ask for two years of mission work or church planting participation after graduation. What about retired people? Well, they're not off the hook. <laughs> they ask baby boomers for something similar, encouraging them to give the first two years of their retirement to be a part of a church plant. Every month, short and long-term missionaries and church planters are publicly commissioned. When they return, they're given a standing ovation. Sorry, we didn't do that this morning. <laughs> When new believers are baptized, they're asked if they believe Jesus saved them from sin and whether they're willing to do whatever He has called them to do and go wherever He has called them to go. When communion is served, it's sometimes presided over by missionaries on video, breaking bread in Africa or India or the Middle East. This was written in 2017, but it says, this month... The summit will celebrate sending out its 1,000th person in 15 years. The church has planted more than 40 churches in the United States and more than 200 overseas. For the first time in 2017, the average combined attendance of the plants bested that of the summit itself. That's amazing. I would say they've effectively created a culture of being sent. They've effectively laid on the hearts of people by God's grace, by God's power, this idea of Christian missions. And even today, we can do that. It's not just churches like the summit. It's churches like Orchard Hills Bible Church. Here are some basic steps that I've jotted down thinking, here's what we could do to contribute to this, a, a ministry culture, a missions culture. First, I believe it starts by talking about it. How often do you think Paul was talking to his sons in the faith about ministry? I'd say all the time. How often was he talking to his co-laborers about missions? All the time. But not just talking about it, the local church has a particular role in also helping people discover their spiritual gifts, helping people have their spiritual gifts confirmed. Consider Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.14 where Paul said, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And again in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 6, 
He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The church is to confirm one another's gifts in the Lord. And we do that through encouragement, don't we? We need to encourage one another. There's another step for us. To praise one another in the gospel. Did you, did you catch how Paul was praising these men in this passage? They were going to hear this letter. They were taking the letter to the Corinthians. They were going to hear what Paul said about them. And Paul knew that. And he just laid on the encouragement about how they've been tested, how they're earnest, how they're diligent, how they've shown that they have the right heart, that they're gifted and fit for the task. How often do we withhold this kind of praise toward one another? Let's not do that. It might be through your encouragement that God pushes someone a little more toward a ministry effort. We see here, too, the trusting of one another that was so vital in this effort, and that's something we can apply here. Paul clearly had confidence in these men, and if we are to have any kind of ascending culture in this church, we got to trust each other, don't we? We don't just verbalize encouragement. We don't just confirm gifts, but also have that true trust. Paul was sending these men on a very high-risk task. There were false teachers in Corinth. There was a lot of money to be handled. There were a lot of things that could have gone wrong. But Paul trusted them. And we too should trust one another when we've been tested and found diligent. There's also wisdom to sending that must be applied. Wisdom that has to be employed as a church sends out people into the mission field. Paul made sure that there was enough accountability in this fundraising effort because he had been accused for not having accountability. Turn with me to chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, and let's look at verses 14 to 18 and see what, how Paul describes the situation and then consider again why he sent these men the way he did. 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 14, Paul writes, "'Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, Am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Paul's character was constantly being slandered. And so he knew that as he sent these men, he had to do so with wisdom. He had to do so with tact. Because there was a precious gift to be maintained, not just the funds, but the relationship with the Corinthians. And so as those who look to sin, as a church looks to sin, we must do so with wisdom, but we do so trusting one another. We do so encouraging one another, confirming one another's gifts all contributing toward a missions culture. I would love to see it. I would love to see that here in Payson. Maybe we'll 
go back to the drawing board and redesign our building expansion to be an airplane hangar, huh? <laughs> well, let's also talk about going. It's not, obviously not just sending, but those who are being sent. Now, as sending is the goal of all churches, going is a calling on the lives of some Christians. There are many, of course, who need to stay and to send others, but going is something that God will call people to do, like Titus and these two brothers. Christian missions simply cannot exist if no one goes. That's the fact of the matter. People must be sent. People have to be willing to go. And there's an amazing story from church history that touches on this point where, where sending meets going. It's the story of the Moravians. Perhaps you've heard of them before. And the most famous Moravian, his name was Count Zinzendorf. What a name. Count Zinzendorf. But I, I want to read to you a bit from an article on them talking about their mission, their missionary efforts in the world. Uh, by the way, the Moravians could actually be considered the oldest Protestant group because they predated Martin Luther. They were followers of John Huss uh, before, a couple hundred years before Martin Luther. And so they consider themselves the oldest Protestant group. But listen to this. This article writes, the Moravian people should be recognized as unsung heroes of the Christian faith. These men and women were zealous in their love for Christ to the extent of going to unthinkable lengths to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. Inconvenience, sickness, poverty, nor any other hardship could detract this people from the missionary call. They had a revival of unity, the Moravians did. This, it's an amazing story. The Moravians had this very clear revival that happened that, that was really focused on the unity of the Christian church. They're the ones who coined that famous phrase, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. That came from the Moravians. And this revival was had among them through a 24-7, 365 prayer chain. They always had two people awake praying. 24-7, 365 for over a hundred years. Isn't that incredible? How's God going, going to use our prayers? And God used them to launch the first full-scale global missionary effort. There were Moravians who went to Alaska, what is now Alaska, to Greenland, to remote parts of Africa, to the West Indies. Perhaps you've read about them reaching the Mohican peoples in New York. The Moravians were sent all over. The article goes on, the furtherance of the kingdom of God became the theme for the Moravian church. They constantly sent missionaries to areas plagued by poverty and spiritual darkness. Many died on the mission field, whether due to sickness, hunger, or the elements. The Moravians labored for the gospel in 10 countries over the first 28 years of their revival. Now listen to this. During the height of their missionary movement, one in every 12 Moravians was serving overseas. One in twelve. The Moravian people played a part in the salvation of John Wesley, and they were one of the largest influences on William Carey's life, who is now referred to as the father of modern missions. They were willing to go. They were open to being sent. They prayed, and God used them mightily. Willingness and devotion to the mission are essential elements of going and like the Moravians, these men were reading about in 2 Corinthians 8, they had it. They had the willingness. They had the devotion. They were very earnest. 
And if you look at verse 22, we see they were also qualified. And this is important. It's something that can be overlooked easily in missions as many people are eager just to get bodies to send out, but they must be qualified. And there are varying levels of qualification to missions. Not every missionary effort is the same, but there are some people who are going out to plant churches or those to disciple and preach to other believers. These men must be elder qualified. There are qualifications to Christian missions. And no matter what role you're playing, there has to be some level of testing. Verse 22, it says that they were partners and fellow workers among them. That's verse 23, rather. And 22, they've often been tested, particularly this other brother. And he was found diligent in all things. Not only because they were caring for this generous gift, and that required accountability, but because they were going to be serving the Corinthian church, they had to be qualified. They had to be tested. They had to be above reproach. Look at verse 21 with me. This is a great memory verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 21. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul's heart was, was fine before God. He had integrity before the Lord. He knew he had a clear conscience. But it wasn't just about doing what is honorable in the sight of the Lord. It's also doing what is honorable in the sight of men. And Paul made sure that there was true accountability in this mission, that they were qualified. And I do believe that this is a good qualification for missions. I believe that this is a qualification that the Apostle Paul had in mind for his whole ministry. It's that missionaries must be earnest people. By that, again, going back to our definition, enthusiastic. Have you ever heard a pitch from a Christian missionary or just hands in the pockets and kind of shrugs and says, yeah, thinking about heading to India. Well, let's get the pocket bucks out. I mean, this guy's ready to go. I've met some prospective missionaries who were kind of like that, just kind of dragging the feet, you know, I, I could go tomorrow or not. I want a man or a woman to be a missionary in this church who's willing to run through the gates of hell to reach people. I want to support a missionary who says, if I live or if I die, I'm going to those people. I have to reach those people. I'm going to start living like those people, learning their language. I want to smell like them. I want to know everything about them. I want to spend my whole life with them because they need the gospel. That's the earnestness that I look for in a missionary. I want to be fired up because they're fired up. And I think if you look at Paul's interaction with John Mark, that Paul considered it disqualifying when a man was not very enthusiastic. In Acts chapter 15, Paul says, I don't want anything more to do with John Mark. He left us. Things got tough and he went home. And Barnabas said, I can work with them. And Paul says, well, I can't work with you because you can work with them. <laughs> and so they split. I think we would do well to at least maintain some level of enthusiasm for the field a person is going to as a qualification. So these men were urged by God through Paul. They were called by God through Paul. And I want us to finish talking about going 
this section about going by considering what that calling looks like. If I'm asking you here this morning to have an open heart, if I'm asking you here this morning to consider how God might be calling you somewhere, we need to talk about what that looks like. Well, the big idea of the calling of God is that He does give gifts, spiritual gifts. He does give convictions. God puts convictions in our heart. He does this. And He does so differently just as He wills. You know that we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. We don't all have the same convictions. God works in our lives individually, but also corporately. Again, the churches are involved, and your local church must be involved. Gifts and convictions will be discovered in different ways, but they should be confirmed by others. There are some people you might meet who will say, well, God is God is." called me to do this or that. God told me even that I should be going here and doing that. And if you were to ask a follow-up question and say, well, what do the elders of your church say? That person may fall silent. That's not because the elders are God. That's not because the elders are hearing from God a competing voice or something like that. But that's because the elders have been commissioned to care for that person's soul. And we'll have to give an account, according to Hebrews, for how they did that. And so the local church is to be involved. Have you, have you talked to people in your local church? You're starting with your closest friends in the church and saying, I'm thinking about this. Maybe God's leading me this direction and getting that feedback because God will work on your heart individually. But he's not going to give you counsel from a good church that's in opposition to that calling. A good church is going to come alongside and say, maybe now's not the time. Or maybe they'll come alongside and say, brother, sister, that sounds awesome. That is for you. Let's do this. God works through His church. And this is especially pertinent for young Christians. So often young Christians have big dreams. I did. When I got saved at 16, when I was in high school and I was getting ready to go off to college, I had big dreams of all the things I wanted to do. But baby believers need to be told we must work toward these things. We must work toward it. God doesn't equip us with everything we need overnight. And the church should be a greenhouse for the gifts and the calling of God. The church should function as a nurturer for these things. If someone says, I feel like God's calling me to do this, and, and several of us are saying, that, that doesn't seem right to me, at least not right now, the response should be, let's, let's work toward it and see what God would do. Let's not give up on you. If God's put this on your heart, let's get to work, even though it might not be right now. So that's a bit about going, sending and going, and then finally, quickly, receiving. This was the Corinthians' role in this big system. The receiving of missionaries is the humility and kindness of a church or of a group of believers to receive those from the outside, and it does take humility. Because there will be some churches or some groups or some peoples out there who will say, we don't need that help. We don't need you to come in, someone who's not one of us, and tell us what to do. It takes great humility. Well, these three godly men were coming into Corinth to be a blessing to them, not to be a coup, but to be a blessing with their teaching and with their service. And Paul urges the church to show the proof of their love as they are in submission to how God has ordered this. Verse 24, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love 
and of our reason, reason for boasting about you. Again, they were to receive and refresh Titus, but this time with his two traveling companions. MacArthur has said that a loving church is a generous church, and the Corinthians were to show their love through their generosity toward these missionaries. And the Corinthians were actually, in all of this, joining the other churches in the mission. Maybe that's something we don't think about very often, but a church that receives help from the outside is just a part of the mission as everyone else. By receiving these men who were coming in, they were participating in gospel ministry, in Christian missions. Well, we will all experience each of these three parts at different times in our Christian life. Sending, going, and receiving. But we are to do so faithfully. And we see this even in what Jesus has done in the gospel, don't we? One way to think about Jesus is that Jesus is the ultimate missionary, the capital M missionary, who was sent by the Father, and He willingly came. He was very earnest for His mission. He was a missionary who said, I will die for those people. And so He did. He gave up His life on the cross, He breathed His last, and He rose again three days later that we might join Him in that mission that we too might be sent, that we might go as God calls us to reach those in our lives with the good news that there is salvation and no other name under heaven but Jesus Christ, that it is not through works of the law, that it is not through any creation of man, but it's by looking at the finished work of Jesus and trusting in what He has done that we are made right with God forever. And then He uses us as instruments in His hand. Does He need you? Laughing is probably like the only right response either. He does not need any one of us. He doesn't, the Creator doesn't need any creature. But does He want you? Oh, how amazing. And will He use you? Yes. Yes. So let's pray toward that end. Father, use us. The church is your tool chest. Lord, we are instruments in your hand. We want to be used by you however you see fit. By your Spirit, Lord, guide us, direct us into service. Help us to have the relationships we need here in the church to get that counsel we need. Help us to be provoked. Help us to see your goodness in the sending of missionaries, even our own children. God, we pray for a day in the future that these little children that we're now just sending to camp for a week would be sent across the world for life. They are yours. We are yours. Our life belongs to you. Use us however you will for your glory. Amen.